Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. I've just been working on the Kotlin book this week. <laughs> I've been working on a lot of Kotlin this week, too. Yeah, how's that been for you? It's actually been really delightful. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't done a lot of unit testing in Kotlin yet, and so I started exploring some unit testing stuff, and I asked on the Kotlin ling like chat i'm like what should i use for unit testing and some people said kotlin test with junit 5 mm -hmm. and that's then, what we have in the book oh nice just because yeah we figured junit 5 is so ubiquitous ubiquitous and popular that might as yeah. well start from there but then the kotlin test is a is a uh, facade yeah so you could use anything yeah like that. so I, I ended up using co uh co-test right um how and it's that? it's been great. Like it, it actually, I think that they have been inspired by a lot of uh, Scala test and and mm -hmm. Scala specs, uh, two different testing frameworks in Scala, and so it actually feels really similar mm -hmm. to Scala, uh, the Scala stuff that I've done. And I this project that I was working on, I actually took some Scala code and migrated it to Kotlin code, and migrating the tests was was so trivial because the mm. syntax was so similar between the two between uh cotest and and scala test i think is what they um made it like um so that was it was it was enjoyable and easy to migrate the scala code over i'm trying to think if there was any places there was like a couple of places where i was using kind of monadic stuff in the scala code and that obviously was a little more challenging and in the the kotlin code there was there are some what, at least one or two monad libraries. Yeah, I mean, I could but... have used Arrow or something. Yeah, Arrow, but, right. Um, and I actually am using the result uh, class in Kotlin, which I when I first tried to use it, it was like, oh, you can't return a result. And then I Googled, like, well, <laughs> why can't I return a result? And it's like, oh, because this is like an experimental feature. And so then uh, you have to enable a compile flag right. to enable the result object. But the result object is monadic. So Ooh. because a lot of my um, data types are based on the result type uh it's actually like I'm, i am using monad so mm. it's it's actually been great and super easy to convert i was in the on the scala code i was using a try which is very similar to the result object you know something that can succeed or fail um, capital t try yeah capital right. t try yeah mm -hmm. yeah and so overall this is pretty darn trivial there so is result i like we didn't cover that in the book is that is that part of Kotlin? It is. It's oh, actually it's in the Kotlin standard library, but it's marked like, do not use this. No, not even experimental. Mm -hmm. Like it's like pre-experimental or something. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know why. I think, mm -hmm. I think, I think it kind of opens the can of worms on the topic that we've talked about, like handle air handling and Kotlin. Mm -hmm. And I think as, as soon as they kind of like say like, Oh, here's this result thing. Maybe you should use it. Then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, uh screw nulls and exceptions like this is so much better and you know i think that they've i think probably for java compatibility they've really kind of tried to not go that direction been hesitant yeah but man the the result doing the result uh class return type is just so much cleaner well and especially because like i need to chain stuff mm -hmm. and that's what we've talked about the value of monads is the the chainability and so um um, isn't that, I, I'm a little, when, you know, I haven't been thinking about this that long because I think about one of the parts of functional programming is composition and chaining feels like composition to me, but I know it's not A calls B calls C inside of parentheses. Sequential composition, I think. Yeah. I mean, it feels the same to me and it seems like it has the same issues, which yeah. like, you know, how do you handle errors in between? What you'd like to do is just call these things yeah. and not have to think about errors within yeah. each one. And so it seems very similar to me, but I don't know, is chaining and composability basically the same thing? They're related for sure. Yeah. I think we talked about it on a previous podcast when we talked about monads, but the but the problem with chaining things that are that have kind of this wrapper type around them is that you don't want your 
you don't want your your method parameters to always have to take that that object that that kind of outer wrapper in the in the parameter type you want it to just take the value because really all you want to do is operate on the the value and if there isn't a value in the case of something like a try then you don't even want to you don't even want to have that be recognized in your type signature for valid inputs into the function and so so yeah it's it's composing but it's composing in a way where you've got this this wrapper that is giving some information about about how to get the value out in some cases and pass that to the next piece of the chain. Mm. So, yeah, I think, I think it is related to, it's a form of composition. Mm -hmm. So in any event, you pulled the trigger and said, I'm using the result type and it was a nice experience. Oh, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, and I could have written my own. There's there's yeah. other libraries out there for Kotlin that have a result type, but I just used the one that's in the standard library with the compiler flag, and it was great. Because why wouldn't you? Yeah. They've probably thought about things you haven't, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah and, you know, like sprinkling in some extension methods and, and um, the, the one thing that I ran into that maybe I could have come up with a, a nicer way to do it, but... In in Scala, there's a nice way where um, with method parameters, if you have, let's say you have two parameters that take functions. Mm -hmm. In Scala, there's a pretty nice way to like make calling that um, look good. And it kind of is similar to the way that Kotlin does it with a single function parameter at the end. At the end, sure. Yep. But what I ran into is I have something, a method that needs to take two functors, two function parameters. And and so in that case, I kind of expected like, oh, I'll be able to chain this by just doing like braces and then braces again, not in the parentheses, you know, outside of the mm -hmm. parentheses. And of course that didn't work because it only works on, on one functor parameter. In um, Kotlin. In Kotlin, yeah. But Scala, yeah. it works on more than one? You, you can make it work in Scala because you can do multiple parameter lists, um, which okay. tripped me up for a while when I was just getting used to Kotlin or getting used to Scala. But you can have parenthesis parameter list and then parenthesis another parameter list, parenthesis another parameter oh, list. Oh, in parens. Yeah. Yes. And right. so that allows you. Yes. It's like the current function current yep. stuff allows you to then have the syntax where if you have multiple if you have two function parameters and two different parameter lists, then you can do, you know, your main parameters in parentheses and then open brace, close brace, open brace, close brace for those two mm. functor parameters. Mm. So, mm. Um, and that's Scala. That's not just Scala three. That's, yeah, that's Scott. Been Scala so as long as um, that term functor has, because <laughs> I thought I, long ago, I thought I knew what a functor was and I don't even remember what I thought it was. But then, um, I probably don't even know what a function oh, is. Oh, okay. Well, maybe no, I want to ask you. So my, my understanding of it is that if you have a function that takes a function as a parameter and or returns a function as a parameter, then that's a functor. So I think I was actually probably misusing uh, it earlier where I said that the parameter was the functor. I think mm -hmm. actually the thing that takes a function as a parameter is technically the functor. But okay, because I, I have a friend who has more of a background in math and... I think he, he made me, I mean, he said something about, oh, no, a functor has actually got, you know, math constraints on it that mm. I didn't really understand. And so mm. I was using it wrong. So you might also be using it wrong. Just, yeah. just a heads up. I, I use all terminology wrong. Um, <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. So, yes, this authoritative podcast, at least we're admitting <laughs> That's, that we're doing these things wrong. Yeah. yeah. Um, hmm. It's. I, you know, I'm, I like to just use these things and sometimes I remember the terminology for them mm -hmm. and, and, uh, monads I definitely do because I've spent a lot of time trying to explain monads and, right. um, so I feel like Th those are the things about that monads, are like burritos, right? right? <laughs> exactly. Okay. Just like burritos. Burritos. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well that, that clears it right up for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You got it. It's you, a burrito. You got okay. it. Uh, so, so this project, um, code test was really nice. Um, and then I was using, I'm using Gradle for the build 
And Gradle has a really nice way to tell it what tests to run uh, when you run your tests. And unfortunately, you can only do it down to like the class level, but at least you can say like, okay, only run the test for this class. And it's just a command line parameter. And then Gradle has the continuous mode as well. And so, mm -hmm. so you, so in my case, I'm doing Gradle W minus T test and then dash dash tests and then my class name that I want to run. And then as soon as I make save my changes, it's automatically running the test just for that class file. So it's it's really nice for kind of rapid testing. Um, it's there. It's not quite as nice as what I do with Scala and SBT. SBT has a way to kind of regex your the name of your test essentially the name of your actual like test case hmm. and not just the class you can also do it in the class or whatever but it has a much more granular way to specify which test you want to run and then spt has uh, some other test like um test quick i think it's called like i think tries to detect what is what has changed and only rerun the affected test or something like that so there's mm -hmm. some nice little tricks that spt has done but anyways what i found with gradle and uh co-test is just nice nice very iterative development experience um oh and i, I want to say this cool thing about uh co-test which was i had this um I have this this one place in my code where before I was just like running this command and then thread dot sleep for like like two minutes or something like that and then and then do my uh, check do my my um, assertion and that's obviously horrible and I had just never I didn't because your to tests like, would take a long time yeah exactly no matter you know how long yeah. it actually took to do yeah. the thing and co-test has built into it and I'm sure that many other test frameworks have this too but has this really nice syntax where you say eventually and then you give it how long you want to allow it to to try for so i say like eventually two minutes is how long i expect it to to complete in uh, at the most comma how often you want to check hmm. and then you provide a function that it's going to run on that time interval and check check the output with your assertion. To see if it's done. To see if it's done. So and that way your test can run a lot faster if it finishes sooner than two minutes. That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just super nice syntax for mm -hmm. for being able to, to have that kind of test that needs to periodically check a condition. So let me ask, um, since you've had this experience going from Scala to Kotlin, um, and since we're starting this project where, we have a lot of Kotlin code. What do you have any perception of how, what kinds of issues we might run into converting Kotlin to Scala? How hard that might be? How... Uh, for our books. For the books. Yeah. 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 Um, I think there's going to be a lot that is just pretty easily directly portable over. Uh -huh. uh, I think that, in some ways, Scala just has more than Kotlin, more features. There are mm. some places where there are different paradigms, like the you know the usage of monads and the standard library and uh, for for air handling that kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, and the uses usage of like option and stuff. So I think there's there will be a little bit of that, but that stuff is pretty easy to convert over. It's like mm -hmm. like in my code, I have option string. Well, we just turn that to string question mark in Kotlin and like boom, boom except unless unless you want to do like monadic operations on the option, which I was doing in a few places. But mm -hmm. um but uh yeah, I think I think generally it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty straightforward to get what's in Kotlin moved over. I think where it's gonna get tricky is okay now we need to add a bunch of stuff for all the other features that scala has that sure. colin doesn't have so mm -hmm. sure um, especially scala 3 but yeah i mean the the syntax like it's really easy for me to go back and forth between kotlin and scala hmm. uh yeah much easier than than any other languages i kind of work in at the same time like oh, yeah. javascript to anything is just hard <laughs> I don't even because I've written JavaScript in the past, but I know that it's changed so much and improved as far as I can, as yeah. far as I understand that I don't know that I would recognize it at this point. Well, and it's gotten really confusing in terms of like, what should you do for their, the async? Cause 
at this point, there's like a hundred different ways to do async stuff. And there's probably like the newest, best way to do it. But can you only do that in Node? Can you do it in the browser? Can you do it in some browsers? And what about next week? That's right. And next week. Well, and, and what I found is that as I search for information about like a particular way to do async in JavaScript, I find like the 10 ways to do it. And then I just get lost. I'm like, mm-hmm. are we talking about promises here? Which promises are we talking about? Which promise library? Oh, we're talking about um, some Node.js like feature that got deprecated and, you know, is no longer the way to do async um, or, you know, uh, I ran into a place recently with Node where I was doing async, but I needed top level async. Uh, and so I need like a function, you know, at the, at the top level mm. that was async and the version of node I was on didn't support that, but then there was some new version of node that I could use and maybe a so compile it's, flag. So it's just, it's JavaScript. Just, just a, just but a disaster. Is, is, did, did they build in an async and await keyword? They did. Yeah. I, um, but is that, yeah, is that the accepted way to do things or people? I think, I think that that's the right way to do it. Now. Okay. Well. Right, because yeah. I know in in Python that's what everyone is moving to. Yeah, know? and then it's like transparent and fundamental yeah. for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that generally the JavaScript community is converging onto async await or whatever the built-in ones. Yeah, the built-in ones. Yeah. But then you'll use a library that hasn't yet converted over, and then you have to like figure out how to interop and Mm-hmm. It just is a disaster. Yeah. So um, well, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an example of a language that. Well, but. Uh, yeah. I, I. So I've done some Kotlin JS stuff, and it was actually a pretty delightful experience. And I, I definitely mm-hmm. will, will reach for that where I can <laughs> versus actual JavaScript. Right. And I know that there's. I don't know what the situation is with. Um, um, what's the, gosh, I've lost the word, the assembly language. Oh, Wasm. Wasm. Yeah. yeah. So I know that uh, Kotlin either generates Wasm or is, is on the... I don't think it generates Wasm yet, but I think that they are moving in that direction. Yes. Yes. Um, and that's part of the native thing. So, yeah, because, you know, if you're using, uh, if you're, if you're, th- you don't have a JVM or anything, you've got right. the you're, you're doing it there, but I can imagine that, I don't know, my imagination takes me to a point where we can take our, whatever language is the most effective to solve this problem, put it in WASM, have a little layer of JavaScript on top of it, or that's calling these things. And and then mostly not using JavaScript. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I hope for is a world where I mostly don't have to use JavaScript. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, then hopefully I can apply CSS someday to that statement too, because mm, CSS is just. Yeah, I know, I know. It's like it should be a it should be a, it's another one of those things that really needed to be a language. It needed to be designed by language designers, and not. Uh, you know, that, well, I think it is turning complete now. Is it? I think so. Uh, okay. I haven't been, Through like horrible hacks. I, I haven't been keeping up, but I, I just remember when I first started learning it and I criticized that. Oh, as, just the, uh, oh the, yeah. The language. I, well, I mean like JavaScript, it's just like thrown together yeah. piece by piece with no real like actual design it was yeah you, the designers were learning about new language features as they were adding yeah. and or or php is another example it's yeah. like yeah they started by solving this particular problem personal home page did you know that's what php stands for i think i'd forgotten that yeah that's personal home page it's like they were just trying to solve that problem and then people go oh we can use this for other things and then so they slowly became language designers yeah. and learned these features and cobbled them in and then slowly i'm sure in hindsight go, oh my gosh we didn't do that right and uh yeah you know and that's kind of what happened it's like, like if i tried to design a language it just would not go well i think and i have sometime. you know i've like designed like my 
uh, Jason DSLs and mm-hmm. yeah. And it just, you know, it, it all seems easy at first and then, and then you realize, Oh, I didn't think about that. The easy parts are easy. <laughs> easy parts yeah. are easy. Yeah. Just put in, just put in generics. Yeah. Add generics. Yeah. Just, yeah. Throw some generics in yeah. there. Cause I mean, that was, I don't know if you know or remember the story because initially generics were brought up. It was, um, Actually, the guy who lives in Aspen, who is one of the founders of Sun. Um, oh, Bill Joy or something? Bill Joy. Yeah. Yeah, because when Gosling was talking to him about this, Bill Joy said, oh, you should really think about putting uh, generics in now before, yeah. you know, you, the language gets used. And yeah, I guess Gosling was like, yeah, it's too hard. Yeah. We'll just we'll just throw this in. And yeah, we, we don't have the time. Yeah. We're in a hurry. Yeah. So, well, and anyway. Is Java one of the first languages that really had a generic type system, or was well, no, I mean C plus plus had C plus 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 had templates. Okay, and were they based on something else? Yeah, I think there were maybe more experimental features before that. But what um, is interesting is how kind of Java style generics have kind of become, in large part, the, the standard for how we do generic programming now. It is. I mean. At least syntactically, I think that yeah, that the actual kind of underlying system of it has changed in different languages. But it has. I mean, and I go back and forth. I mean, my first experience with generics was with C plus plus, and so the idea that it you say I'm making a generic for this type, and it goes, all right, I'll lay down the code for that type, and inside that code, you can treat that type like that type yeah you know what it is and um that was my initial experience with it and so when java came along and said ah we're not gonna let you do that we're gonna erase the type and everything i was just like shocked and horrified Mm -hmm. and over time i've come around to going well yeah i mean it's nice to do what you can in c plus plus that that's that's very Mm -hmm. powerful but What's the basic reason that we use generics? You know, yeah. it's primarily containerish things, and what Erasure does is it goes, yeah, inside the container you can't know what the thing is. Yeah, um, I mean, Kotlin has um, inlines and uh, reified right. um, together allows you, but even then, it's just a little bit more information. It's not yeah. like C plus plus, but in the end, what it is, it's like. When we give you the type back, we'll give you the exact type back. Yeah. That's that's where you see it. And you go, it, most of the time, that's okay. You know, yeah. that's what we need. Yeah, there are some times when it would be nice to, to have this C++ functionality, but not as much as I initially imagined yeah. that it was was uh, necessary. So there were, I watched this great talk. I don't know if it was Philip Wadler who did it. Um, but and I can't even remember the terminology for it, but there was um, par- parametricity or something like that. But um, it was talking about how, how when you can, you should make every function as generic as possible. Mm-hmm. And so the example that was used was if I, if I give you a, uh, if I tell you, okay, here's a function that takes a generic type T and returns a generic type T you can infer what that function does in a, as a pure function. So if all that you have is a generic type T, you have no type information about that T and the function returns a T, the, the only thing that that function can possibly do is just return the T. Because there is no other, you, you have no other, operations that you can you have no other uh, no other information no information telling you what is possible with that type yeah yeah and so um and so then you then this talk kind of walked up from there okay if i tell you that i have a function that um that takes a um a list of t and returns a list of t uh again there's like there's like three oper- possible operations that can actually f- fit in that function. You know, you could do a filter uh, is one. Um, you could just return the original list is another. Um, well, you could map you, you, something onto it. Uh, 
If I mean, if you had you an extra argument, if you had an extra, yeah. Okay, so you're saying no extra argument. No extra argument. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you could do a map, but your your T is going to still have to be a T. So you're yeah, like actually map mm, map which... on a list of T to a list of T like is actually useless um, in that in that scenario. If you if your type signature was list of T to list of uh are right. you know some other generic um then then you you would have to provide a map function some way to get from a t to an r and right. that would have to be another parameter but the whole point of this was that uh um that the more generic you make your functions the more people can infer what the what is actually happening in your function or the more limited of capabilities you have in your function which is good for for conveying to to the the function caller uh you know what's actually happening and so i thought it was an interesting way to look at it i think it's called parametricity or something like that mm -hmm. but, um but i found that interesting and i've tried to do that as much as i can like okay if i can pass a generic here instead of a concrete type then i should yeah i could i could see that because there's there's cases where let's say you do want to have some operation and in your use case you know, you're you're taking a list of foo and returning a list of bar or something like that. But if instead you can genericize that function to be a, a generic list t to to list r, then that actually like that constriction of what's possible in that case is actually a good thing. Mm hmm. Sure. Yeah. Hmm. I know it's generics are kind of an endless source of mental um contortions because yeah. when you start thinking about them i i feel like i well what we did in the kotlin book in atomic kotlin i feel like we really um got the some of the essence down like even covariance and contravariance as much as i was fighting to keep those terms out and uh, svetlana kept wanting to put them back in and finally we got to this point where it was like okay this isn't too long and I think it actually does help internalize yeah. what the terms mean yeah. and yeah. how it works. I yeah, I think we really hit it. I'm I'm quite pleased with the nice. results of the book. But um, so we were we were also going to talk maybe a little bit about macros, which is another kind of um, yeah. Well, and this um, kind of stems from from a, a tweet that I made this week that got some people fired up. Uh, so it's actually two parts. I said, uh, uh, one of the best things about GraalVM is how it's going to force us all to not use reflection. Mm -hmm. And then I I had to clarify. Hashtag um, reflection is bad. Uh, reflection is the devil, or as Bill corrected me today, it's one of the devils. Um, but I said, to clarify, GraalVM native image, which is important. We'll talk about this in a second. Okay. Supports reflection, but it needs to be explicit. Some JVM libs and frameworks are moving away from reflection. And I'm happy about this because I would rather do the most possible validation at compile time. And I've had too much pain debugging reflection. Okay. So um, this was, I was working on a project where I, it was a Kotlin project and I was trying to get it running in GraalVM native image. And it's important for me to clarify the difference between GraalVM and GraalVM native image because, and that was one of the things that I was clarifying, was that uh, GraalVM native image is what we've talked about a few times where it will take a JVM-based application and ahead of time compile it into a native image. So there can't be any reflection because it's all ahead of time compiled. There, there, there can, can and can't be. Um, okay. GraalVM native image just needs to know about the reflection. Ah, so you have to explicitly tell it the classes that that get reflected on and the methods that are exposed and the the information that that you that is access well, access with annotations or something. There's a few different ways to do it, but most the common the most common way is a uh, JSON config file where you just put in the class names and mm -hmm. then put in uh, do you want all properties to be accessible, et cetera. So there, there is some ways to generate that configuration, uh, which makes it you know nice where in a lot of cases you don't have to come up with it by hand, um, but it can be kind of painful. And I experienced a lot of that pain this week when I was trying to get this, this Kotlin 
CrawlVM native image application native uh, compiled into a native image, uh, specifically around JSON serialization, because JSON serialization is one of the places where on the JVM we typically use a lot of reflection to mm. like generate serializers and deserializers, like do that all through reflection. And uh, coming from the world of Scala, we don't use we don't use reflection for that. We actually use, um, there's a couple different ways we'll talk about in a minute for how to do that. But, um, but the whole point of my tweet that I was trying to highlight was that, that because ahead of time compilation needs to have this explicit reflection information, a number of frameworks and libraries are moving away from reflection. And I consider that to be a really good thing because reflection to me, it's just like this anti-pattern for we're using a, a statically typed language, but then we're like doing a bunch of our stuff at runtime instead of being validated by the compiler. You're cheating your way out of it. Yeah, mm. but I but I totally understand like why why it has been necessary to use reflection because we didn't really have the other tw other tools available to us to not use reflection. And so we just had to reach for, it's, we didn't use reflection because we wanted to, it's just, it was the only way to do what we needed. And so dependency injection, JSON serialization, like all that kind of stuff, just reached for reflection because it was the only possible way. So um, one point I want to clarify about why I had to get specific around GraalVM native image is that GraalVM is also just a JVM. So you can run your application in GraalVM in a JVM, and in that case, reflection works just like it does in Ooh, any so other. So it's kind of like what Docker is to Linux, GraalVM is like is to the JVM. Yeah, yeah, GraalVM is just a JVM, but GraalVM also has this tool to ahead of time compile the application into a native image. Right, and so what does it do with reflection? I can imagine. I mean, I can only vaguely imagine some kind of mechanism that is able to generate a bunch of code that, you know, replaces what the JVM does for you dynamically. Yeah. So it's so. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 got to do a lookup, right? If you're doing reflection, it's doing a lookup. And the the challenge with reflection for ahead of time compiled things is that it doesn't know how to follow that code path, right? Mm -hmm. It's it is at the point where you're using reflection to do something, you are, um, you're, you're giving it a path that it can't follow ahead of time mm -hmm. in a, ahead of time compilation, because it's not a compile time construct. Reflection is a runtime construct. And so, so by giving GraalVM native image, the JSON config file for the reflection information, now you've told it all the places where it needs to know, uh, that there's going to be a code execution path through um so it's like almost like it's installing dynamic binding for those things you know it's almost like making up its own virtual functions yeah yeah i don't know how it's all implemented under the covers but yeah i think conceptually it's mm. something along those lines okay. so um so i i'm a huge fan of doing as much at compile time as possible and this includes like the wiring of of uh, dependencies for dependency injection. This includes like creating JSON serializers and deserializers, kind of all the stuff that we typically have done in reflection. Like we, we now have tools available to us to do this at compile time. So as an example, Micronaut is mm -hmm. a framework that uses annotations just like uh, Spring and Quarkus and other frameworks, but they actually implement those, those, um, annotations at compile time. So they're not doing reflection. So Micronaut had, um, typically, as long as you're not calling into libraries and stuff that do reflection, works really well with GraalVM because it's not compile or it's not runtime reflection, it's compile time annotation processing. And to do this, they actually use the Kotlin annotation compiler, uh, capped. I don't know if you've gotten into cap stuff in here. Nope. Um, so so I think it was created for something with Android, but but Micronaut was able to use it. Um, and I, I think that I'm speaking accurately about how they actually do their annotation processing at compile time, but I could be wrong about some of this. But I know that they do their annotation processing at compile time. So mm -hmm. they actually mm -hmm. can 
at compile time create the dependency graph and, and validate the dependency graph, mm. um, which is really nice. So, so that's one way to to get around using reflection and move it into the compile phase is to use uh, annotation compiler of some sort. Mm. And so, is there a lot of um, performance? impact by doing this there is because reflection is actually pretty expensive in the jvm to do and so by doing it all at compile time you really have much more optimized code paths and so uh so one of the things that micronaut and micronaut touts is their startup time is really mm -hmm. fast and spring boot has done a lot of optimizations and i don't know how how they've done the optimizations but they've done a lot of optimizations so their startup time has actually gotten really good too but um but yeah micronaut starts up super fast because it's not having to do that runtime dependency graph mm. figuring um and then for me the biggest benefit is that like things things are not dynamic at runtime <laughs> it's like i get i get static capabilities not just for my classes and code but also for my annotation based wiring hmm. um so th so that's one way to get around to not use reflection uh in the scholar world they we typically use macros as the way to to not use reflection so there's a way to hook into the compiler and and they um, library can add its own, own macros so that so that instead of um, doing things at runtime through reflection, you do things at compile time. So you actually uh, a macro will generate a AST that gets injected into the program AST. Yeah. So as a as a little bit of a going back and historically, like if you're coming from C or C++, you hear the term macro and you think it's just some basic compile time substitution using said or something, which is probably how they initially <laughs> implemented it. Yeah. And then um, my experience was that I came across Lisp and they, and people would say, oh yeah, there's Lisp and then there's Lisp macros. And that's like incomprehensible. And, you know, obviously it's not totally incomprehensible, but it was because it was a different paradigm when yeah. you were trying to use Lisp macros than you were programming in Lisp. And then Scala has had macros, right? Yeah. But historically they've been like a different, you, you have to, it's not. I think at the low level you're writing the AST. Right. But, but what uh, I never went down to the lowest level mm -hmm. what i used was something called quasi quotes i think it is and quasi quotes lets you embed essentially scala syntax into into the code and then the quasi quotes at compile time compiles that block of scala and then turns it into the ast or whatever that's then needed to be injected so, into the compiler yeah so so, but originally Scala 2's macros were in something that wasn't Scala. And now in Scala 3. So you could you could essentially do it in Scala with the quasi quotes. With quasi quotes, but yeah. that was a third party yeah. library. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. yeah. So, but the way they designed Scala yeah. 2 was it's like, oh, yeah, there's this other thing off to the side, which is macros, and that's different. Yeah. And now in Scala 3, you write macros using Scala 3. Yeah, so in Scala three, what they one of the big things that they have been trying hard to do with Scala three is to make the type system sound mm -hmm. and uh, sound like what? <laughs> sound like cheering. Um, uh -huh. I I've. I've tried to explain what type system soundness actually means, and and I don't have a I don't have a good way to explain that. But I mean, it sounds mathematical. It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that guy who got his PhD in type systems would be able to yeah. understand it, maybe not explain it, but understand it. Yeah. I mean, so it's presumably like, it's, it's a consistency. Kind consistency of between compile and runtime is I think right. the biggest part of it is that like, once you have validated, a, once you have valid, validated the whole type system, the whole, every type used in an application at compile time, you should never have a case at runtime that that you get a type that violates what you validated at compile time. So I mm -hmm. think that's maybe way off, but something along those lines is what type system soundness is about. So macros 
are a gigantic hole in type system soundness because with your macros, you can do crazy stuff that totally violates the ability for a type system to be sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of cool that you can kind of do whatever you want, but it also is one of the goals of Scala 3 being type system soundness. Um, Including they, macros. They, they spent many PhDs trying to figure out how to how to redo macros into something that could maintain the the type system soundness. I like the way you put that spent many PhDs. It sounds like, <laughs> oh, that. Those poor know, PhDs. The, or the scenes seen in that, uh, uh, what was it? The, you know, the, the ones where the, the Spartans were, you That's know, right. and, and it's like somebody comes along and they, they don't fit the mold and they just kick them into the, to the pit. Yep. Yep. So that's, they, so I think there are some PhDs in the pit uh, yeah. who, who got, whose lives have been ruined <laughs> trying, to, trying to make, replace macros with something that would not break the type system. Uh-huh. So Scala 3 did come up with a couple of ways to, to do this. And it's all under the banner of metaprogramming. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I don't know a whole lot about this, but you're right that one of the ways is that you can use Scala to write, um, to metaprogram in, in a Scala program that then the compiler can then use that metaprogramming to do things. Um, and so basically what's happening is, um, the Scala compiler takes your Scala code, it parses it, it builds the abstract syntax tree. And then at that point, your macro can come in and using in Scala three, using Scala syntax, you can manipulate that abstract syntax tree to do amazing things. Yes. Okay. Which you can't do with regular Scala outside of the macro. Yeah. 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 So for example, let's, um, would this be a solution to like in the in the book that we're talking about, we would like to be able to have a print statement and we'd like to be able to hijack that so that it will capture the output of the print statement in something that we can later compare hmm. to see what we're expecting. It, would that be a macro yeah. application? Yeah, I think that we could do that through macros. Okay. Be interesting to try it and see. Mm-hmm. Um so that might be our one example of macros in the whole book. Yeah. If it's if it's not too complicated. Yeah. I have I have done very little metaprogramming in my life. Just because usually it's like, okay, the JSON library did the metaprogramming for me, so I don't have to. And so so today a lot of the JSON Scala JSON libraries will have a, a macro mode that you can use if you want that will use a macro to generate the serializers and deserializers for a case class. And it's, it's nice and convenient. Um, and so one of the use cases that they had to cover with their new metaprogramming stuff in, in Scala 3 was allowing you to, to solve for that use case. And so, um, so there's another part of metaprogramming, which I really don't know much about, but I'm fascinated by, is called GADTs. Uh, and I think that's general algebraic data types or something like Are that. Are you like, sure it's not Google algebraic data types? <laughs> um, but let's, let's say it's generalized algebraic data types or something. Like yeah, that. we actually, in, in the Google algebraic data types, we added a, um, a subtraction, uh, data type uh-huh. and, and, uh, so, no. um, so he's kidding, right? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. Don't go looking that <laughs> up. Right. It's, you know, why do we only have product and sum? We should have more than product and sum. Why not division, subtraction, you know, uh, well, we just factorial. figured out that That's, why not a factorial, like algebraic data type uh, is there a well i mean we figured out that the product was uh not yeah. generally usable so probably yeah. those other things are even less generally usable that's, that's right um okay so gadts are a metaprogramming technique that allows you to to generate the uh generate Serializers and deserializers is is a common use case for them, mm-hmm. um, and that's about all I know. 
<laughs> that's it. Well, full stop. That's the limit um, of your knowledge. But it, but I know that Miles Saban has has done a lot of work to get Scala three to support GADTs mm. and better metaprogramming techniques. Mm. And so, so I think um, there's when we look at okay, the past is using reflection for JSON serialization and deserialization. The kind of like where we are today is like macros and type classes to do that. And what the future looks like for languages for doing this sort of thing, metaprogramming thing is GADTs. Hmm. Um, so that's my understanding of, of past, present and future. And, and I think Scala three uh, brings the GADT stuff so that we have yet a better way to to do that type of metaprogramming. It seems like macros... it's compile time and preserves type soundness. <laughs> well, because it, it seems like macros are something that I, I'm I just hearkening back to when I was on the C standards committee, and one of the things that um, Bjarna Strustrup was saying um, at the time was that he was making a distinction between library creators and library consumers and saying that for the library, we, we want to move the complexity onto the library creators yeah. so that the experience of the consumers is, is, is much better. And, you know, for example, I think Python has achieved that amazingly well. And it seems like macros are almost another level of that. They're saying, yeah, we want, it's a, it's a trap door that allows you to get into things that you simply can't do or are just heinous to do in regular code. But the number of people who are going to do that, or maybe, I mean, that's where the complexity has been moved. Yeah. But at least with Scala three, they haven't created a whole different language and paradigm for, um, for creating macros, at least, you know, you know, Scala, and you can still use it for macros. For so it's a little yeah. bit more accessible and maybe that'll be the, the right balance for yeah. this kind of thing. Yeah. 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 I think it'll be interesting to see, like, uh, I know that the, the, the PhDs did a lot of work to see what use cases are not covered by the Scala three, the new Scala three metaprogramming things. And, I, I think what I've heard them say, like Martin say, is that almost all of the common use cases that people were using macros for pre-Scala 3 are now covered through the metaprogramming stuff in Scala 3. So I think it'll be interesting to see, like, does that Wait, are you out? distinguishing between macros and metaprogramming? Uh, you said... Yeah, well, it's kind of. So in Scala 3... I think that they don't really, they're not really supporting macros. I think that they're actually like, like dropping technically macros. Okay. The, I'm not understanding. All, they have a whole new, they have a whole new system of metaprogramming that is essentially macros, but doesn't, doesn't macros can do anything they want to the AST mm -hmm. in the compiler. But because that breaks type system soundness, they now have a whole new mm. model for how you do metaprogramming in Scala 3, new syntax, new keywords kind of stuff uh, that, that the compiler looks at and says, okay, this is some Scala code that is going to do, that I'm going to handle in this way to metaprogram the, the AST. But it's but still not Scala giving code. You still Scala code and not giving you direct access to manipulating the full AST like you could do pre-Scala 3. Okay. So it's got limitations, but it's one of those limitation benefit. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, so I don't, I don't, I think that that is why this in Scala three, they don't call it macros. Uh, they call it metaprogramming. Okay. Well, let's say that's very valuable to know. Okay. Yeah. That's really. Cause I think they actually like technically are dropping macro support. In okay. Scala three. That's one of the breaking changes. They're saying if you want to do this, you can do it using metaprogramming, and that's the only acceptable way. Yeah. yeah. Because then it's part of the consistent type system. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. That sounds like that'll be very interesting to see. At least it feels more accessible to me. Yeah. Because I've never waded into full on macros and tried to yeah. figure out. And I've, uh, 
I when I did the, the talk on Scala three with Josh Surratt, he did the part of the talk on metaprogramming, uh-huh. and I like kind of understood some of it, but um, mm. but a lot of it was just. But you were looking at your phone mostly. Yeah, it did, <laughs> while we were presenting. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean Josh is brilliant, and uh-huh. uh, and I don't understand ninety percent of what he says, um, but but the metaprogramming stuff was was mm-hmm. definitely over my head, and I think maybe part of it is just like. I don't often have a need to metaprogram. Like, like I was saying, like usually the libraries that I'm using have done that hard work for me. And so, okay. But I'm really, you know, when, when you put out something like that to me, then it's just, it lights a little fire. Like, for example, if we, if we do live in a simulated reality, my interest is, well, the only interesting thing about that is, can you hack it? And so when you say, oh, here's this language and now there's metaprogramming and and I go, hmm, that sounds really, I wonder what you could do with that. Yeah. So it'll be fun to explore explore it it for the Scala 3 book. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm not sure that I would be up for doing that on my own, but if the three of us can, uh, can, can go thrash around with it, we might get somewhere. I guess it's interesting that there, there are language features that are targeted at library authors and there's language features that are targeted at library consumers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, it's different. We have different needs. And so I, I don't think I've ever published a Scala library. I'm trying to think if that's true, but, um, if I have, I don't remember it. So, uh, so I have different needs than people who are primarily writing libraries. Um, so one of the places where I've seen some in- really interesting uses of Scholar 3's metaprogramming is there's this library that I use called Quill. And Quill allows you to write Scala code uh, to that then gets turned into SQL queries. Hmm. And I love it. It's phenomenal. Like, like I get to write like flat maps and those flat maps get turned into like SQL joins and stuff, you know, like, like all the SQL stuff I don't want to have to think about and figure out. I just write Scala and, and I, I've really enjoyed using Quill, but of course for Quill to do this, it uses macros to, to take that Scala code and turn it into a SQL query. It, uh, cause it, we don't want to use reflection. So, so it, in, instead it uses macros to do this. And, uh, and the libraries of Quill are just genius, like many Scala library authors, but the, um, the primary author, uh, Alex has been working on converting Quill to work with Scala three metaprogramming mm-hmm. and had amazing results at like how much it's simplified what what the way that he writes his uh, Quill code that takes Scala code and turns it into SQL queries. So hmm. um, so for the tweets I've seen from him, it's pretty positive feedback for for yeah, like this is this is um, a much nicer way to do this metaprogramming. So for his use case, it's uh, liberating. But we may discover some other use cases where they're going, and I could do this with yeah. with macros, but I can't do it in metaprogramming. Yep. That'll be interesting to see where are the limitations. Yeah, that's what I'm. Well, and, and I, I know that people did their PhDs on exactly that topic, so I'm sure on where they're... the limitations are. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and and looking at existing Scala libraries to see, oh, can this be done in the new metaprogramming model? Well, and of course, they, there were many PhDs that just had to come up with the new metaprogramming model and do it based on what people's needs were, mm-hmm. based on how they were using macros. And so I, EPFL has published a lot of that, those studies and information and explorations. And I, I think that they have been working on this particular project for like like five or six years to try to ditch macros and replace mm-hmm. it with, with a metaprogramming. So it's, it's been a pretty lengthy project to, to be able to come up with this new model for metaprogramming. I can only imagine. I mean, the I mean, geniuses for yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, and I, and I, you know, they're in uncharted territory with this too. So it's also yeah, the research, the benefits of the research are, you know, enormous, I think, because yeah. it'll, it could influence 
other languages. Yeah, you, very like simple. maybe uh, Kotlin, Kotlin in a few years. We'll take the metaprogramming model that Scala has kind of mm-hmm. done and, and implement it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought that the Kotlin X serialization library would be macro free because it actually has a compiler plugin that you use. So mm-hmm. a compiler plugin is like a, like the annotation compiler, like you can do stuff, you know, mm-hmm. to compile with a com- compile plugin. So I thought that it would be reflection free, but then uh, learned that actually there's still one place where Kotlin does use uh, reflection or uh, Kotlin X serialization does use reflection. And so um, that was interesting to see about. Hmm. So I wonder at some point, like, will Kotlin be like, eh, we need some metaprogramming capabilities too. Oh, I'm sure they must've thought about it. Yeah. I mean, they've, oh, sure. they've definitely take, and yeah, there's, there's, they're always looking around to seeing what other languages are doing. And does this make sense to include in Kotlin? It's, yeah. it's very interesting to see how, what I, th- I consider very thoughtful of a process they go through to, before they add a feature. I mean, you know, for example, the result object and they're balancing that with well you know what kind of impact is this going to make on java compatibility which is super important yeah because they've done so much to make the java compatibility really well thought out and seamless yeah and it's it's very impressive but it's also it also gets you a little bit because you're going oh they're having to make compromises because of java yeah and that Anytime I, you know, I feel the, the chains, Jacob Marley's chains, you know, yeah. dragging you down into the past. You're yeah. like, oh, why can't we just? Yeah, it's interesting how Scala started as a better Java. Like that's that was the original kind of pitch was a better Java, and now you don't hear anybody in Scala talking about it being a better Java anymore. It's like, okay. Kotlin can have that title, and now Scala is just like, now nah, we're 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 moving on. We're not yeah, just and a I better job. I appreciate that they aren't like look. I mean, Kotlin is saying. I, I mean, in my opinion, they're going. Yeah, we want to replace Java, and I think that's yeah great. And Scala is is going. No, we're not. You know, we don't care how big our market quote market share is. We're we're looking at you know, doing amazing pieces of research. We're, we're looking at pushing the boundaries of computer science forward. Yeah. And if that produces a language that helps you get your job done, great. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I really appreciate that uh, yeah. mindset. Yeah. That's interesting. I think Martin, he would love to see Scala become the, the you know, de facto general purpose programming language. Well, of course. But. <laughs> As a language designer, I guess you kind of have to be in that mindset. Um, but there's there's definitely some challenges to, to that. Like, I think for a Java developer or a JavaScript developer or Python developer to move to Scala, it's a it's a bit of a learning curve a lot, oh, yeah. a lot more than than like java to kotlin <laughs> oh i mean for sure I, I feel like when diana and i started working on uh, atomic scala it was just i mean the the first year year and a half two years we were just in a fog yeah. trying to to begin to understand what is this about because i mean that the the mental paradigm shift that you go through yeah and once you go through it, you go, oh, I see this really does make sense. But the process of going through that, yeah. I think, needs to be a lot smoother. I think that's what we're going to try yeah. and achieve with the uh, Atomic Scala 3 book is, yeah. is a much more, you know, t- keeping in mind people coming from n- languages where the word functional isn't ever yeah. talked about. It's not a not Yeah, a I remember the moment where... I uh, started learning about immutability mm-hmm. and I was just like, it's not possible to create a program with immutability. You'd like, run I, out of memory. No, my, I like, I really didn't. Oh, there right. was that moment where I'm like, no, like, like I need to mutate things in order to get from, from point A to point B. Like, yes. like my, my brain just could not possibly comprehend a different way that didn't work with 
Oh yeah. You know, without mutation. I totally, totally with you. Yeah. I mean, and I still have trouble sometimes. I mean, you know, like if I'm writing a Python program, I go, yeah, I, I'm sure I could do this without immutability, but sometimes so much easier just to take the thing, change it and assign it back to the thing. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's hard to, yeah. it's, it's difficult to get over that hurdle. There. And especially, I mean, that's the way Python is designed. Yeah. It's one of the maxims in the Zen of Python, um, which if people don't know, if you start up the Python interpreter and you, you type import this, you'll get this, the Zen of Python, which um, Tim Peters created. And uh, Tim is it's really Zen thoughtful. of Python is, is genius. It is. But one of them is practicality beats purity every time. Yeah. And, you know, and I've been thinking about that. And that's, that's one of the things that I brought up with the, uh, with the builder and my experiences and going, yeah, but when I'm trying to get this thing done, sometimes it's mentally easier yeah. to just do kind of a builderish thing. And it gets me from point A to point B and it, yeah, it's not perfect, but it works. And it's, it's not the purity of the, of the result. It's the, the ability that it gives me to go through these steps mm -hmm. while I'm creating yeah. the program. Yeah. And so I don't know, I don't know what to, to do with that. Yeah. It's interesting. If I think that if there is a Zen of Haskell, it probably says that purity beats practicality. Purity time. beats everything. Purity beats everything. Yeah. And, and so why are you even asking this question? <laughs> uh, I think the scholar community, uh, at least the like real functional side of the scholar community is not, not that extreme, but, but that's the mindset that a lot of them are in is like, yeah, this may not be real practical, but it's pure. And, and I totally get that. The feeling that you get when you write an elegant piece of code that has that pure feeling to it is it's, I mean, it's like when you're leveling up on a video game, which I haven't played video yeah. games in a really long time, but I remember the feeling, you know, it actually rele releases endorphins Yeah, and you go, Ooh, this feels good. I want more. Yeah. And so I know that happens when you're dealing with functional programming, you're going, Oh, I saw this thing that I normally would have done in this sloppy way in this other language. I've done it in this really cool way. Yeah. And that feels good. You're yeah. Like, Look at it. Let's just stare at this piece of code for a while. Yeah. I mean, an interesting example of this is that, uh, if you, if purity is really like one of your core goals, uh, it turns out that random is hard <laughs> because random, random is not pure. Like you, you can't have a pure function that returns anything related to random. Time is the same way. Time, time unless you not... use the same seed for the random number generator, which is how I do it in examples in the book. Cause you want yeah. to test the results. And so I just seed it with the, the same, yeah. the same number. Yeah. And so, so to, to remain pure and have random or time-based things, you, you it, it adds a complexity that I think a lot of people would look at and be like, yeah, that's not practical. Why can't I just call math.random or whatever? Well, but you would, to, to generalize that, it would be time or random or IO. Yeah. Any, I mean, all well, of them any are kind of IO. Yeah, we call those effects. Effects, so yes. It's anytime you touch the outside world. Right. Oh, you get dirty. Yeah. 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 Well, it's very much like the difference between pure and applied math. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but ultimately we need applied math. Yeah. But there are a lot of benefits that you get from keeping things as pure as possible. You know, you you yeah. there's you you can use mathematical laws and theorems and stuff and know that it works. That's right. But you can't deny that at some point you have to interact with the world and get stuff done. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's the, and exactly. There's a tension there. Um, and as you know, I'm very much on the side of purity and, and, uh, <laughs> keeping my effects, um, isolated and, <laughs> but, I've also written a lot of code lately that is not at all in that vein because for practicality, you know, for, for reasons that were practical, I 
had to just choose to give up on my desire for purity to, to get things done. So, yeah. And the, I mean, this is the thing that I'm struggling with. It's like, okay, so this works, this code or this technique process, whatever it works for some definition of work. I mean, that's, and that's the uh, applied math aspect of things. It's like for some definition, yeah. whereas in pure math, it's like, no, it's absolute, you know, the pi R squared is an absolute thing. You know, there's, yeah. there's no, and, um, and it's like, I don't know, I guess maybe that's what we do. We decide this is okay. This solves my problem. It didn't take very long to do it. If I need to fix it, that'll be fast too. I don't know. And I, and I think when you're dealing with something exploratory in particular, oh, it's like when people talk about test-driven development and they go, well, always write the tests first and then do the thing. And so much of the stuff that I do is exploratory. So I don't even know what the test should be. Yeah. And so it doesn't, you know, there's the purity is too pure. Yeah. And where do you, yeah, I don't know. I guess our our jobs as programmers is primarily to say this is good enough or uh, 10,000 people are going to be using this piece of code and we've seen what happens with JavaScript. So let's let's buckle down and get That's pure right. on this yeah. this bad boy. Yeah. Yeah. It's we we have to live in that tension and uh -huh. um I think I think that like we've talked about a number of times that the purity and the happy path are converging, and mm -hmm. like I look at what Scala Zio is doing, and it's really making it a whole lot easier for for average developers like me to build pure functional programs, mm -hmm. uh, and so um, and stay on that happy path. So I think that that. The, yeah, this will continue to converge, and and I think at some point we won't have to think through the trade-off so much. Yeah, I mean that certainly happened in the evolution. I mean, just during my Garbage lifetime in the evolution is, of yeah. programming, it's like, oh, you have to think about this. Oh, we don't have to think about that anymore. We yeah. we keep ticking things off. Yeah, I mean, just uh, memory management used to be huge pain yeah and then we got garbage collectors and then we have rust and both rust and c plus plus have things that keep track so that you don't lose track of your memory yeah. and 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 then i mean i prefer a garbage collector i i understand the limitations and why you would want to use c plus plus or rust in some cases but most of the time i don't want to think yeah. the less i have to think about that kind of stuff the more in the happy path i am yeah Exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, cool. Thank you. Thank you.